You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach. David, how are you? Well, I'm well, Giles, which is more than uh, probably can be said of everyone in the world at the moment. And I guess uh, along with our special guest today, we're probably some of the few people in the world not talking exclusively about the COVID-19. Well, yes, we're going to have to talk a little bit about COVID-19 today because it's clearly having an impact on the um, energy industry in various ways, but also opportunities too, which I think is something that we're going to pick up with our um, our guest. And um, look, hello to all the uh, listeners out there. Many of you are now working from home and um, a whole new experience for a lot of you. I've been working from home for the last 17 years, so I don't feel unique anymore. Um, But anyway, look... Let's introduce our special guest before we get to talk to some of the other things that um, um, are rolling around the industry. Matt Grudnoff from the Australia Institute, Senior Economist. Um, Matt, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thanks for having me, Giles. Look, um, we're having you on because you and Richard Dennis from the Australian Institute held a um, press conference in Canberra yesterday. And look, a sign of the times, you were sort of talking to a single camera, as I understand it, with no journalist present because everyone's probably keeping cover and doing whatever. But look, I got a transcript and I was actually really interested because we're seeing a whole bunch of money being thrown at um, various people and various businesses by the Australian government um, in response to the anticipated and existing impacts um, of the um, COVID-19, the coronavirus, your argument is that we should be doing something a bit smarter, a bit more strategic, a bit more sustainable with this investment. Tell us roughly what you're thinking. Yeah, that's right. So um, stimulus is about buying a, uh, a lower level of unemployment and a higher level of economic growth. Um, and so the government putting money out, that's a good thing. Um, the problem is, is the the government's not actually buying very much with its money. So what it should be doing is um, rather than just handing out money, it should be trying to employ people or um, getting businesses to do things. Um, And then we get those secondary benefits. So for example, an example, um, you know, in in the distant past, um, a lot of the tidal pools that you find at beaches were actually constructed um, during the depression as as a way of um, encouraging employment. Um, now today we're still using those. Well, perhaps not today, since you know the beaches have been closed. But right up until just before today, they're being used. And so, 90 years after they were constructed, Australians are still getting a benefit from them. And that's a really good example of what the government should be doing with its stim- stimulus spending. It should be uh, creating things that give us long-run benefits. And what might some of those be in today's context then? Well, I mean, there's there's all kinds of things that the government could be doing. Um, it could be um, it could be uh, rehabilitating um, areas. Um, we've just had the bushfires go through. There'll 
there's uh, significant unemployment in some of those tourism areas. They could be uh, eradicating weeds. They could be constructing bush um, walks. Uh, they could be putting uh, solar panels on public housing. They could be building more public housing. Um, there's a whole range of different things that they can do. What they need to do is, is they really the criteria for these kind of stimulus policies is two things. One, are they employment intensive? And two, will they um, benefit Australians going forward? And if, if they, they tick both those boxes, then they're probably a good stimulus package. I guess my question would be that, you know, a, a vast number of people are going to be actually out of work and those people uh, need financial support. And I just don't see, and they need it next week. I just don't see it's that easy to get those people to be doing jobs, which often in today's economy require quite a lot of skill. Uh, I still go bushwalking on paths that were built during the Depression, and I've been hearing this argument since the 1970s uh, about what unemployed people should do or shouldn't do and all these schemes. That, But, I mean, in the end, a lot of these schemes are, are pretty difficult to implement. As That's what I'd say. Yeah, look, I mean, you're absolutely right that there is different forms of stimulus and the kind of stuff I'm talking about is not the kind of stuff that is immediate. So absolutely, we do need to increase the rate of the unemployment um, benefits as the government has done. We do need to give businesses cash grants. We do need to give households cash grants. That's immediate stimulus. But this economic crisis is going to last a lot longer than the health crisis. And the health crisis is looking like it's going to last at least six months. So once we've, once we've got the initial drop in demand covered with additional spending, there's a whole heap of things that the government should be considering right now or should have started considering um, weeks ago to roll out to enable that employment to continue along. So to give you another example, you're absolutely right that um, you know these things required skills, but it just requires a bit of imaginative thinking. On the uh, Great Barrier Reef, there's going to be a whole heap of scuba divers who are now unemployed. We have a, a crown of um, thorn starfish problem on the Great Barrier Reef. The government could be employing those scuba divers who have a particular set of skills um, to, to go and start eradicating this crown of thorn starfish. At the end, we'll have a, a, a reef that's um, more resilient um, and will last longer as a tourist attraction um, and we've actually, rather than just giving money to these scuba divers, we've actually got them to do something. Mm. I wonder, um, energy efficiency sounds like um, something that we could um, also think about, um, particularly in schools and homes and things like that. I'm just wondering how much that whole controversy over the pink bats, uh, which is one of the major initiatives in the Labor government's response to the uh, um, GFC, is colouring their willingness to do something similar. Oh, yes, I definitely think that's a part of it. Um, governments, are unfortunately, are worried to, to, to undertake um, projects like that for fear of, of something going wrong. But I don't think that should actually stop them. And I think Australia will be a poorer country if they allow that to stop them. I mean, uh, if the schools shut down the way they, they look like at the moment they're going to do, those schools will be empty. This is a great time to come in and recarpet them, repaint them, um, install solar panels on their roof to reduce their, um, their, their energy bills into the future, um, to basically uh, bring forward all the maintenance that we're going to have to do in the next 5, 10, 15 years anyway, um, while they're empty um, as part of the stimulus. And that will employ people to, to, to under, undertake all of these work. 
Matt, can I ask uh, just generally, has the Australia Institute done any, uh, made any preliminary estimates of the like net impact on the Australia's GDP in, say, calendar 2020? Did, did you have a number for what sort of a fall of GDP that you're looking for? Uh, no, we don't. Um, I mean, the, the, the reality is um, nobody knows at the moment. Um, the Treasury thinks that um, we're looking at at least uh, about a percentage point off the, uh, the March quarter and probably something larger off the June quarter. But the reality is this, this recession, like most, um, well, it's not a recession, this crisis, like most crises, um, is a bit different. Um, and 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 therefore it's it's very hard to predict. This this one's different in that it's not actually a cyclical downturn. That is, we haven't seen like a boom and then a collapse in demand. Um, what we're actually seeing is a deliberate contraction of the economy. We're deliberately closing down industries at the moment because of um, the health crisis and because we need to to stop the spread of the virus. But right now, if this was a cyclical problem, what we would see is, is we'd see the government stepping in and trying to encourage people to go out to bars and clubs, trying to encourage people to go out and spend money. Well, we're actually doing the exact opposite for, for, for very valid health reasons. And so for that reason, this is a very, very different um, economic crisis than previous ones. And, and because of that, it's really difficult to, uh, to know what the full impact's going to be. Well, I agree with that, but that's still the case in point. So, I mean, I agree with everything you said, but that doesn't actually help me at all. I mean, uh, I mean, if GDP normally grows at 3% uh, as a rough indication in Australia in real terms, I mean, do you think it might be down this year 3%, down 5%? I mean, you know, we're talking about a six-month, as you say, health crisis, a total shutdown of the a uh, significant part of the economy, like, I mean, uh, small business employees, about 44% of the workforce around the world, I think is the number I have. And I guess about half of that is in business with five employees or less, um, you know, and I think about half of that you know, will, will actually be stood down. I mean, so we're going to see uh, unemployment in such a short space of time, or at least people stood down on a scale, I think that's fair to say that we haven't seen in my lifetime. Um, it doesn't. I think this idea about one percent fall in GDP per quarter is just, uh, you know, complete loony stuff. It's got nothing to do with what how bad it's actually going to be. Well, yeah, I agree. It's going to be bad. And before I make any predictions, let me just say that that macroeconomists exist in predicting to make astrologers look good. So, so take everything um, I say with with a grain of salt. But you're absolutely right. Um, because the government is not able to stimulate in the usual way, because it has to get creative. Um, and because it's not trying to expand parts of the economy, this will be quite a deep slump. Um, and the other thing I think that people need to understand is, is long after uh, the medical crisis is end, that is long after the virus is well and truly under control and, and infection rates are falling um, or vanishing altogether, um, the economic crisis will remain. That is, that is the slump in economic growth will not rebound. The, the government's constantly talking about a rebound on the other side, and it's absolutely the economy will eventually start to grow again. But it's going to take a lot longer than just the end of the, the, the health crisis before the economy recovers. Why is that, um, Matt? Can you explain that to me? Yeah, sure. Well, the economy is basically a giant circle. So um, the amount of uh, the amount of 
um, stuff that gets made is dependent on demand um, and the amount of um, demand for things is dependent on income and the amount of income um, is generated by the amount of production. So when, when we take production out of the out of the circle, just because at the other end um, the, the health crisis goes away and we're all able to go out to the clubs and pubs and, and, and you know, tourism is now open again, it doesn't mean that people will have that income immediately to go out and spend. And if they don't have that income to go out and spend, then firms aren't going to make as much stuff. And if they don't make as much stuff, they're not going to employ as many people. And if they don't employ as many people, there won't be as much demand. So essentially, once you break that cycle, you have to then basically wind it back up slowly in order to get back to where you were before. Um, it's, not the, it's not the case that it'll just immediately jump back. Yeah. So and there's two look other at, things um, to add to that, like confidence will be low uh, for some time and confidence directly impacts, impacts consumer spending, which is the largest component of GDP. Uh, and of course, there'll be way, way more debt at virtually every level of the system. There'll be more government debt, there'll be more state debt, and there'll be more business and personal debt, all of which will uh, act to uh, presumably That's increase spend, yeah. saving, but but will uh, reduce consumption and GDP growth. Mm. So absolutely. The, no, you go. The, you the go, economy is as much. Yeah, look, absolutely. The economy is as much um, psychological as it is mechanical. Um, and when confidence vanishes, um, that can actually create real real reductions in in spending and real reductions in production. Yeah. So here's a question for both of you. Matt, first on the economic part, and um, David, maybe on the regulatory and um, investment side, specifically for Australia. Uh, Fatih Birol, who's the chief executive or the secretary general of the International Energy Agency, has been pushing the line that this is a perfect opportunity to invest in sustainable energy, sustainable infrastructure, and all those sorts of things, more wind and solar, more batteries, and accelerate that energy transition for the same reason that you're outlining at the start. You've got built-in long-term benefits, and, and, and now's the time that you can deploy something. Given the impacts on the economy, what are the breaks? I mean, how how hard would it be? And we'll get to David later on with the regulatory barriers in Australia, but how hard, economically speaking, would something like that, um, how hard would that be to implement in Australia or even elsewhere? Uh, not particularly hard at all. I mean, what, what the crisis has shown is that all those things that we said were unaffordable aren't actually unaffordable at all. Um, the government is ready to spend in order to, uh, to to maintain demand in the economy. All it has to do is direct that spending to the sort of things that we want more of. And what we want more of is renewable energy and energy efficiency and those kind of things. And so all the government has to do is start to, uh, to, to invest in, either directly or, or through the private sector, um, invest in um, those kind of projects that are going to give us those kind of things. David, this sounds like an open, open invitation. What, what are the problems? Well, I, uh, the first thing I'd note is that everyone's got their pet industry, you know, that they think uh, should be developed. And in the historically, uh, governments have tried to uh, invest in short-term fixes so that they don't get there out of phase. You don't want, say, you're going to do a snowy two, right? It's going to take 10 years to build and years and years to design. By the time you've actually uh, committed to spending the money, you, know, you often find the economy's rebounded uh, naturally. So it's 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 difficult to get the timing for a lot of these things exactly right. And as I say, it's difficult making choices. And if the government, which I strongly advocate, was to uh, in, in go on an investment program for decarbonisation, 
it's still going to face the same level of ideological opposition, virus or no virus. And um, you can see that in the way that the public is so willing to listen to the health and government is so willing to listen to health advice, generally speaking, advice from experts on, on this issue, but they don't want to listen to advice from experts on stuff like climate. It's one of the great uh, difficulties that we face. So I'm all in favour of all of this investment at any time and never waste a good crisis, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm not convinced uh, that Scotty's quite ready to jump uh, on board just now. Yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if every time the government made a climate change announcement, they had a, a senior and respected climate scientist there to comment on it in the same way that we have the chief medical officer in the press conference with with the PM every time they have a, a COVID-19 announcement to make? Yes, wouldn't that be great? Yes, well, um, perhaps that's something we can look forward to afterwards. <laughs> um, David, um on that infrastructure investment and some of that um, energy stuff that um, you've, we've been talking about, uh, you might write a piece, an interesting piece uh, today, or sorry, in, in Monday, because uh, this podcast may not actually be published until Tuesday. Uh, you wrote on Monday about the argument to unlock the considerable, in fact, huge wind and solar resources in North Queensland, uh, which you point out are actually anti-correlated or not correlated with the rest of the country. Therefore, they could actually add, um, uh, bring added benefit to the uh, energy mix. Um, tell us a bit more about what you've been writing in that one. Well, I, without taking up too much time, the fact is Queensland's got the best uh, wind and solar resource in, in, in Australia, maybe outside of West Australia, certainly in the, in the national electricity market. And uh, um, yet it's a lot of that's in the relatively inaccessible North Queensland. Um, there's enough wind and solar in the proposed Queensland North, North Queensland Renewable Energy Zone hub, uh, which is one particular area halfway between Townsville and Mount Isa, to give you an idea of how remote it is, uh, where there's enough there to power all of Queensland all by itself. And so the question is, how do you get that to the market? Um, and uh, the argument I would want to propose, the idea I want to float, it's no more than that. The thought bubble is that you could build a, a DC transmission line from up there to down south uh, in one go instead of this endless incremental upgrades of the ageing AC transmission system. And the question is whether the ISP, in its modelling, at least cost modelling approach, actually, actually thought about that hard enough. It's the same argument that we also heard from uh, David Osmond that says that it's the reason why you need to build another cable to Tasmania when you're trying to get a least cost system. Um, it's also worth mentioning, Giles, just incidentally looking around the traps that, as I said in the last podcast, electricity demand in response to this uh, virus fell 10% in the first two months, January and February, uh, in China compared to a year ago, which is a, a pretty dramatic fall for electricity consumption, although it's a very seasonally difficult time of the year to get an accurate measurement. And the indication, as far as I can see in Australia, is that over the past seven, 30 days, electricity consumption in, in the NEM is down about uh, 6%, thanks to our good friends at Global Rome for the data. Well, that's interesting. And um, I presume that also means a, um, a, a fall in prices, which um, could be good for some, but Price not so good for others. Yes, yes. Some of the, uh, pr the prices are soft at the moment. Uh, in, they're down less than half in most states uh, for the calendar year to date compared to last year. The only state where that is not true is New South Wales, which where the bushfires uh, did push prices up 
very dramatically, and that effect is still lingering in the in the year to date average. We're also mm. seeing some advances, uh, Giles, as uh, Bruce Miller's pointed out. The the blackout in South Australia, the South Australia is the ongoing experiment in how to run a reasonable size, you know, a one and a half gigawatt uh, grid, <laughs> uh, pretty much on gas and, and renewables only. Um, and uh, what uh, Bruce's research showed, and I think you've published that on um, uh, today as well Indeed. on Renew Economy, uh, is is that in fact uh, it's perfectly possible to run the grid without having too much inertia because South Australia doesn't have very much inertia. Gas generators don't really are not inertia machines themselves. And so we're starting to see with the more modern inverters, and I think this could apply up in Queensland as well, that, that in fact the synchronous condensers can actually make things worse as often as they can make them better uh, in, in some of these difficult circumstances. And what we really need to get to a 21st century, century solution rather than a 20th one. But uh, that's, that's, no, that's my that's... idea. That's interesting. And look, Bruce Miller is not the only person to actually point out that synchronous condensers can make things work uh, worse. Um, Transgrid has also made the same observations in looking at New South Wales and the rather haphazard nature of the way that synchronous condensers have been um, required to be put into the grid. And a lot of that's got to do with the new generator performance standards and the new rules that were brought in after the SA blackout. And as Bruce also points out, is that some of these new rules are actually making these new big batteries less efficient. So quite ironically, the Hornsdale battery, which was the first big battery, sort of got a tick in all four of its responses to the um, massive shakeout that happened when the transmission line came down in Victoria and created another island for South Australia. The Hornsdale battery actually performed better than all the others. And one of the reasons that Bruce Miller identified that the other batteries didn't perform so well was because they were required to do things that they might not necessarily um, be very good at doing um, under these new rules. And I guess this comes down to a one of the big fundamental problems in this transition of the grid is the management of the rules and the reactions and um, the need to carefully think out and also to be flexible and nimble in the thinking um, and not just simply sort of require things just for the sake of requiring things. And, uh, um, you know, we're starting to see these problems emerge all through the grid in, in, in various instances, and including in North Queensland, which you mentioned, where, like in Victoria, where we've had five solar farms have their output cut in half, we've seen another two solar farms and one wind farm told that they'll be dialed down to zero unless the two local hydro plants um, in the north of the state are operating at uh, full capacity at the time. So, um, so Charles, that's another thing my note was trying to point out was that, in fact, Queensland has a power in North Queensland strategy, or it did have one in, when it was important to have one in the election in 2017, but it's pretty much dropped that. And so it seems to me that uh, they do need to bear a, sh a share of the uh, blame for the transmission issues in North Queensland since they offered to do something about it in some sense previously and haven't done. But I might turn around and come back to Matt and say, and to you, Giles, and note that we had uh, a COAG Energy Council meeting on, on, on the weekend where for once there seemed to be a bit of a cooperative response. Uh, and uh, it's easy for everyone to focus on the present danger, clear and present danger, which is the virus, rather than deal with all the issues that have been dividing uh, COAG and, and, and Matt, I might ask you how. What do you think uh, COAG's uh, priorities should be over the next uh, two or three years? Well, I mean, sh certainly in the short run, as you say, that they're going to be dominated by the virus, and and that will make them look quite united. Um, but but going forward, absolutely, um, the, the the energy network um, in particular. 
um, the NEM is is something that needs reform. Um, and and um, by the way, some of those transmission um, projects that um, the ISP were putting up are, are prime candidates for for other stimulus spending as well. Um, you know, one one of the things that seems to be holding renewable energy back is, um, among other things, is is the transmission network and, and how it's configured. And and this is a prime opportunity for the government to step in, um, create jobs um, by spending and, and upgrading some of these connections um, in order to make it easier for renewables, which is we know is cheap, the cheapest form of power, to flow better into the into the system. And and the long term benefit of that is obviously not just decarbonisation, but lower electricity prices. And Giles, what what what, what, what you know co- is COAG doing any good for anyone at the moment? I mean, it, it seems to me that without the federal government standing up and and backing the ISP, and I had it put to me the other day that uh, one of the reasons why Angus Taylor is so reluctant to back the Energy Security Board or to mention the ISP is that apparently it's perceived as a as a kind of uh, Malcolm Turnbull sort of uh, uh, baby, uh, and therefore. You know the Liberal Party can't be seen to be backing it anymore. Oh, good grief! Look, nothing would surprise me more um, or, or less. I mean, it's just um, yes, no. It's quite extraordinary. I would point out that um, one particular Malcolm Turnbull baby, which Angus Taylor is very happy to embrace, is um, Snowy Two Point Zero, um, possibly because his grandfather was the chief engineer in the original Snowy project. But um, yes, there is this idea that um, if Malcolm supported it, it mustn't be a very good idea. Uh, I'm not really too sure what is actually. Um, the problem with um with with, with going with going ahead and embracing the isp you just sort of think that um this is a blueprint well it's so frustrating for so many people that here is a blueprint that tells you here's the path to zero emissions or incredibly low emissions to major emissions reduction cuts and he basically will not mention it and certainly nobody else in the um Liberal Party or the Coalition will mention it every time they're talking about zero emissions targets. Um, they reference nuclear and you don't get a single mention of wind and solar or large-scale batteries. Um, although we are seeing a rollout of some smaller projects, both in hydrogen and in battery storage and virtual power plants that are happening around the place, but um, still no sign of this $1 billion grid fund, which I think was supposed to be aiding this uh, rollout of networks. Um, Matt, I'm not too sure whether you're been looking into this, but um, CFC, I suppose, I think was supposed to manage a $1 billion fund, and um, I don't think it's actually been seen, and that was more than six months ago it was announced. Yeah, I certainly haven't heard anything about it uh, more recently at all. Um, uh, you know, I don't know why it's going slow, but um, yeah, I, I haven't heard a thing. Uh, you know, anyway. it's really $2 because there's another billion supposed to be going to New South Wales, although that's partly contingent on New South Wales doing something about gas in the state, which it hasn't been able to achieve so far. I will note for our listeners that one good thing to come out of the communique, the COAG communique, was that they're going to develop some rules, whatever that means, around renewable energy zones. Uh, And then we've got this uh, continuing uh, thing that you have to watch is the people actually running the ship. Uh, We've noted already John Pierce's tenure is likely to come to place. One thing we haven't mentioned here is the AMC appointed a new chief executive about a week or two, two weeks ago don't know anything about him, frankly. And then we also have to keep an eye on uh, whether Kerry Schott's going to stay on as the chairperson from of the Energy Security Board. And I'm observing that the Energy Security Board is down one permanent appointee uh, since uh, Claire Savage went off to the Australian Energy Regulator. So, you know, that we haven't even got enough people uh, uh, or the right people. Uh, so that's certainly something to be um, to watch. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Look, um, I think um, we might um, just wrap it up there. I just want to say thank you to our ongoing sponsors, Solaray Energy and um, Evergen. Thank you for your ongoing support to the podcast and thanks for everyone listening at home. And um, thank you to Matt for um, contributing to this week's episode. Look, it was great to get a sort of a slightly broader perspective. Um, it's quite interesting times here. And I think uh, as people are trying to make sense of what this virus means for their industry, it's good to get that uh, that, that, that broader outlook and just um, an, an advice about the way that the government could be thinking, but um, doesn't seem to be yet. Matt, let well, me put you, you on the spot. Let, let... Let me put you on the spot before you get to say goodbye, and and I want to ask you, uh, what, what do you think? Uh, how should I express it? What will Australia's GDP be this calendar year in year-on-year year terms? Is that is that a good way? To, you, right, you get right. to make a guess. Think, you get to make a guess as an astrologist I get guess. To make a guess. Oh, okay, all right. Uh, I think that um, overall, year on year for for the calendar year, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out there and say that it'll be negative. I'll say. Uh, not necessarily a huge negative number, but say negative one and a half percent for the whole year. I, I actually think it'll be and worse that, than that. I reckon. I reckon it'll be negative three to five percent. There you go. There you go. That mm. will be a big, big drop. Well, on that cheerful note, Matt. Look, thanks very much for joining us um, from the Australia Institute. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. And David, look, thanks once again for your weekly contribution. And we'll be back again next week with a, um, another interesting guest and some more developments. And it'd be interesting to see where we're at with the virus and um, if we've actually set into a new routine or we're still struggling to make head and tails of the government um, decisions. Thanks, David. Thanks, Giles. And wishing all our listeners uh, the best in these very troubled times. Absolutely. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.